My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on Pros and Content, we have the fifth in our series of online roundtables. Thus far, we've spoken with amazing leaders and heard their perspectives on how people have responded to immediate and unexpected concerns arising from the COVID-19 crisis. In this discussion, however, we'll be going a step further. Now that we've had some time to adjust to the new normal, we're asking leaders how they're adapting with a forward-looking perspective and what that means for their businesses and their customers. Once again, hosted by Anda Ganska and Rachel Tipograph, this episode was recorded on April 16th, 2020. We hope you enjoy. I can't believe this is week five of us doing this and pretty wild on my uh, way to prepare for this. I got a text message from the city of New York extending their pause at home through May 15th. So we definitely have more webinars ahead of us. But I think at this point in time, we've reached 6,000 people, which is absolutely insane. And for whatever reason, have been able to convince some of the most brilliant marketers and business leaders to join us. And I'm really excited to hear from everyone today. Um, but I know, Anda, we wanted to talk about adapting to the new normal because it doesn't really feel like this is going to end anytime soon. And I think we all have a lot to learn from the last five weeks. Uh, I'm curious to hear things that have been working at Notch. Um, I pulled my team today in Slack and I said, hey, for the webinar, I want to share with everyone what you actually have felt has made an impact at the Micmac culture during this time. And I thought I would share some of those poll results. Uh, and, you know, maybe some of you are doing these things already within your company, but if not, I've gotten at least positive feedback on these few things from the team. So uh, it started, we closed our office March 10th. When did Notch close our office? March 6th. Okay. Yeah. You were way ahead of the curve. And I remember I texted you and I was like, do you think this is like weak of us to not go back to work? Like, does this mean that we're putting out messages that we're not serious enough about our work? And it feels so crazy to have asked that now. No, I mean, you were, you were absolutely right. You had the crystal ball. So we started March 10th and, you know, the end of our Q1 was obviously March 30th. And historically we would have like a big celebration as a team. So I didn't want to cancel the celebration. So we did the celebration via Zoom. I bought everyone dinner, meaning I allowed them to expense it. Everyone was drinking. We had, you know, so much fun. And we did a big award show. You know, one of the things that I feel is really important right now is that we find ways to recognize individuals within the company and try to make a really big deal of it. And it's, that seemed to really resonate with the team. Uh, another thing that seems to really resonate with them is we kind of created a company policy where you got to have video on and calls. And people have said that that's been a positive impact and they've even been forcing that with clients, which I find quite interesting. Um, another big thing was, you know, once the school system closed, and I'm sure you had to deal with this too, Anda, figuring out how to support parents that work at Micmac. Because the reality is they have a full-time job and now they're full-time homeschooling. And... I have so much respect for a lot of people who are in that situation right now. And I actually called up Claude Silver, who is the chief people officer at VaynerMedia, and I asked her, how are you managing this with parents? 
And she told me that they created a policy where parents can just block out time in their calendar. It says personal time, no questions can be asked. At Micmac, I'd say 25% of my employees are parents. So I wanted to create a policy that could work for everyone. So everyone is entitled to put anywhere between one and three hour personal time blocks in their calendar. If they're delivering results to the business, that's all that we care about at this point in time. That rose to the top. Um, and then finally, we're doing expert Zoom classes. So once to twice a week, we find a chef, a yoga instructor, a breath instructor, and we're doing company classes via Zoom. So those are some of the things that I've gotten feedback from the team in terms of what's made an impact. Uh, I want to hear what's going on at Notch. Well, so what's funny is I just finished a three-hour board meeting. Um, so if I, if I start speaking in Romanian all of a sudden, you'll know why. Um, and I asked them for advice at the end because for, I think, it's, I think New York in general has just been worse hit, but um, our team has gone through a lot over the last couple of weeks. You know, we, we've definitely had a lot of people on the team who are sick, a lot of loved ones who were sick, some people who passed away in our network, and it's just made things darker than usual. Um, and I reached out to the board and at the end we said with my co-founder, you know, what, what have you seen really work? And we had a little debate around, you know, how much do we talk about our feelings at work? How much do we want to bring that into the way we do business? And what was really interesting is um, the advice was to kind of come back to what makes the company special and to double down on um, the fact that now more than ever, what we do is relevant and not a lot of companies have this. And I think that's true for Micmac as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we have heard time and time again, this is not just me you know, being biased saying this, but we've heard on these webinars, obviously e-commerce super important, content extremely important, people kind of going back to brand and embracing it in many ways. Um, and so bringing it back to the mission, I think is, has, you know, I know it's basic, but I think it, really resonated with me and my co-founder and making sure that we're investing in the things that matter, which we're, we're telling our customers to do as well. We're investing in content, we're investing in marketing, and we're investing in product and we're continuing to hire. And I think that message of momentum and of investment in our product and our strategy and our mission is always going to be the thing that's most important. Separately, just a couple of other points. We created a mandatory break, um, which we then had to also uh, make sure we respect as leaders. And that was the second after a week, we were like, oh guys, hey, like we really need to lead through example here. But one to 2 p.m. Eastern time every day, um, you're, not allowed, you're not allowed to message anyone or to you know, respond to any messages if you're messaged. And it's helped because it, it, we needed to kind of give people permission when the lines are so blurred and work is life and life is work, we needed to just tell them stop working essentially. Um, and then finally, in terms of parents, um, more than half of our leadership team has at least one kid. Um, and we have folks on the leadership team who, um, you know, both parents are working. And um, one of our leaders, Maddie, who's uh, amazing, she runs a customer success team. She has uh, times during the day when she has her daughter and then she has times when her husband has, the, has their mm -hmm. daughter. And, um, and the times when she has her daughter are the times we can schedule calls with her. And the times she doesn't have her daughter are the times that she does, you know, focused work. Um, but she's been one of the most productive people in the company. And I also get to see Tilly, her daughter, on conference calls. So all in all, I think positive. Um, but yeah, those are some of the high level things. And I know today we want to hear about the new normal from all of our panelists. And I'm very proud of the lineup we put together today. I think we're going to hear of um, a few different perspectives that um, uh, hopefully will give us a sense of where not only marketing, but also company culture is across the board. 
Um, so I'm excited to, to jump in. Yeah. Uh, any other reminders? Yes. Yeah. A few quick things, real quick. So for folks who've been joining us for the last five weeks, thank you. You guys know the drill, but uh, just to share it, there's a Q&A function. Submit questions. We're going to, every half hour, pull from the questions, turn to the panel speakers, and allow folks to answer them. So please do that. Uh, and if you ever need anything, you know how to reach Onda and I, you know our websites, but just definitely give a plug there. And then finally, you might think I'm in a very large closet. I am not. My internet cut out in my apartment. Uh, if anyone works at Spectrum, I need your help. And I ran to my friend's store, Kalmeyer, amazing pantsuits for all the lady bosses on the line. Please check it out. I'm wearing one of her shirts right now. And uh, Rachel's also going to be changing into many different outfits. Yeah, throughout I might. I might. So I'm, I'm literally in a store, guys. I'm in a store. So real retail is happening. All right. Turning it over to you, Anda. Who is our first speaker? We have up next Naveen from Prudential. Uh, Naveen, welcome. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you great. Thank, uh, thanks, Anda, for having me. Yeah. So, Naveen, you are the Chief Marketing Officer at Prudential Financial where you're responsible for the stewardship of the Prudential brand, customer engagement and acquisition, and connecting the company's customers and prospects to needs-driven solutions in their channel of choice. Prior to Prudential, you worked for 20 years as a senior executive in several Silicon Valley companies, um, which makes your background really interesting and in some ways unique. And so I would love to hear from you just a little bit as you put both your tech hat on as well as your financial hat on, what are some of the big things that you're seeing in terms of the new normal inside of companies? And have you seen Silicon Valley be different at all in the way they were responding um, from New York, where I know you're currently residing? Yeah, you know, lots of lots of things there to unpack. Uh, so first of all, thank you. Um, this is I'll say, you know, being bilingual in both tech, uh, East Coast and West Coast, large companies and small companies gives you a little, bit a, a little bit of a unique perspective. And this is what I would say, that smaller companies are far nimbler, which is kind of generally what you would expect. But the impact that large companies make and the scale at which we make that, we have to learn how to be nimble. And uh, crises like COVID actually allow you to be nimble because what happens is that the processes that we set up in a larger context actually don't work. So one of the things that kind of, uh, that comes to fore is the purpose and what's really key and core becomes clear, very, very clear across the organization. So what I actually saw was that uh, the large companies start operating like small companies uh, when a crisis happens, which by the way, when times are happier, uh, everybody's worried about kind of their turf, so to say. But when you kind of get into a crisis mode, the focus around the key stakeholders, I think, uh, uh, gets really highlighted. And uh, the speed and velocity and decision-making uh, is so much more streamlined. It's exciting to see that happen. Lost you. You're on mute. Oh, I think I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's a really interesting point. Uh, the large companies functioning more and more like small companies. I actually think we've all seen really great productivity and kind of efficiency coming out of this remote work that we weren't expecting. Uh, probably a little bit too much. Um, and so that's, a, that's an interesting insight. So Naveen, I know that uh, you've made some big decisions 
coming into this uh, or, you know, coming into this week and even right after the crisis hit, you were also trying to make some big decisions going into the crisis. So can you fill us in on some of the things that you decided on as soon as you realized what was happening? Yeah, you know, it was a very interesting crisis for us. I think, um, so just to kind of give you a sense, we have 46,000 employees across the globe. and uh, U.S. alone, we serve about 25 million customers. And uh, the way the crisis manifested itself, uh, first of all, the markets went crazy. So we saw market drops like, you know, 2,000 points, 1,500 points, pretty much on a consecutive basis. Uh, so when that happens, people were dealing with many things. So they were dealing with anxiety about their own lives, about their families, about the pandemic. But in midst of all that, they were also losing their portfolio values. And by the way, this is not just individuals. This is also institutional clients. So I think uh, one of the things we had to do as a marketing team was kind of sit back and say, uh, how will this crisis manifest itself? And that was really critical to us because if we understood that, we can plan a strategy around that, right? So the things that we understood was, first of all, our job as a company would be to reassure people. And the fact that when these things happen, uh, they, we come out of that. And whether the recovery is going to be a V-shaped recovery or it's going to be a slow recovery, nobody really knows. But there is going to be a recovery. There is hope and there is a way to come back. And by the way, the more we think about it, I don't think this is a two-quarter crisis. I think this is a four-quarter crisis. This is not like 2008. This is not like 9-11. But there is an end to it. And end to it, when we talk about the new normal, is going to be a place where I think there'll be profound, profound changes in how we think about healthcare. Uh, you know, really, I think that's an area which is going to get torn apart in terms of future of it. I also think how we use data is going to be quite different as we think about the future. But in the in the in the manifestation of things, um, anxiety and reassuring people was probably the first order of the day. But then if you think about what we do as a company, so we support uh, these 22 million customers in the context of their disability income. Uh, we send paychecks to retirees. Uh, we make sure that we, uh, any claims we have on life insurance. So we are sitting in the thick uh, of this crisis, right? At the same time, we are not the first responders. So how do you balance the fact that you're not a first responder, but behind the scenes, you are actually a first responder? And we had to get a plan for that. And I think if you go a little deeper than that, the next stage of that was, um, so first is like the bread and butter. We need to make sure we can reassure people, have claims all set up, have the call center volumes we take care of, uh, have proper reporting so we can make decisions. But then can we go beyond what we do? And I think that's where the role of multiple stakeholders, you know, what are we going to tell our investors? What are we going to tell about our customers? Communities, right? So we have a $1.5 billion community fund. How are we going to leverage that to create community value, right? So suddenly the number of stakeholders that we had to engage with was very high. We also were creating massive amount of content. So for us, it was about, you know, how do we look at different stakeholders, employers, pension plans, you know, large retirement companies, uh, individuals, you know, advisors. So we actually launched about 300 pieces of content in five days. We built from scratch five new websites across different audiences. So that required a level of connectivity in the organization that we had to orchestrate. 
And my point about large companies operating as small companies, you know, the definition of momentum is mass times velocity. If you can take mass at the scale of a company like ours and combine that with velocity, you create tremendous momentum. So I think we saw that momentum come through quite clean and clear, uh, but it was a lot of orchestration. And I think uh, I like that word orchestration because the different instruments, everybody's playing their own thing, but in the end, there has to be a symphony. And I think uh, um, sometimes, you know, uh, that symphony becomes cacophony and you have to deal with that. Uh, but how do we orchestrate in this uh, was really critical for us at scale. I, I am so happy to hear that you created a lot of content uh, and that you set up a bunch of new uh, websites to host it and that you got your team galvanized around it. Uh, it obviously means a lot for us um, and for the industry as well to see you really leaning into it. Um, I know that you made a bunch of uh, last minute creative decisions. I would love for you to fill us in on that. Um, tell us a bit about the difficulties you had to deal with in making that happen. How did you galvanize both internal and external partners around it, um, especially with the remote work? Yeah, you know, so I'll tell you a story here. It was really kind of amazing. So we had been working on launching a new brand campaign. And I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, give out the campaign yet, but I'll give you the context. The context is uh, we as a company generally don't talk too much about what we do. Um, and uh, that's a kind of a handicap, but also the strength. We believe that being like a silent observer, uh, but helping a lot of people is a good thing. So we were trying to change culturally the fact that we can actually go out and talk a little bit about it. So we presented to the board and the date for launch of that big, big campaign was actually first week of April. And uh, so you can imagine we had bought media across like TV and we had bought media across programmatic. I mean, we had a plan for over $50 million in first month and we were going to spend close to like half a billion dollars over a course of four to five months. And when something like this happens, you have to immediately say, okay, uh, that plan ain't going to work. So that much you're very clear about that we have to do this and we can't do that, right? So first thing you're going to do is kind of get our media team going and say, okay, anything that we have bought, can we repurpose it? Can we delay? What can we do about that? So I mean, this is where the orchestration part comes in really clearly. Uh, then we had to go to all our key stakeholders, including the board, and tell them, listen, all that we agreed upon, we're going to change that. And uh, the, the real notion was, I think we were thinking about the secret is out. And uh, that was the kind of the messaging behind the campaign without actually getting into the campaign. So we had to completely pivot that. And uh, within two weeks, we actually kind of read the entire campaign and changed it to Outlast. So the secret is out became outlast. And the notion that all of us have to persevere through this, be resilient, and then outlast this pandemic to a place where we can climb back up. So we haven't given up on the secret is out thinking, but we are leveraging that out in a broader context of outlast. Also, we changed the media from uh, being like 30 seconds uh, a minute to more 15 seconds and 30 seconds because we believe that the frequency of touch is going to be quite critical at this stage versus overall messaging. Because when all said and done, right now, I think all you can do is create a subliminal way for people to remember you when they are ready to act. And in a category like financial services, most people right now are frozen. They're not really making many decisions. They just want to make sure that their portfolios are preserved. 
but a lot of activity would come back maybe three, six months down the line. So you still want to be there for your customers. You still want to be out there talking about who you are, but the tone and the mentality is more about thanking people for their perseverance. How will we outlast this together? So it was a, it was quite a, quite an interesting exercise of uh, redoing our entire creative, our entire brand dollars and media. So it was, it was, it was kind of a, um, 24 by seven operation going on. And I think one thing which uh, I learned from this, which we missed, and I, I want to kind of acknowledge that, uh, was uh, we have a global company, right? So we were getting signals from uh, Japan and Korea and many other places, but I don't think we actually did a great job learning from it. And uh, and the reason is that uh, the, the the our company, our team in Korea, uh, actually was going through this and they were doing their part in it. But uh, we felt that the crisis was so far away from us. By the time it comes to U.S., it will manifest itself differently. Uh, but it really didn't. And the, the pace by which it came through. So within like, I mean, you guys talked about you were out of work at like March 8th. So between March 8th and March 21st, the world had t- turned upside down. Right. So we didn't we could have actually done a better job of leveraging a global signal that we didn't really do. So that's a learning for us that uh, uh, especially when things of this scale are going on, we got to listen more carefully. Thank you, Naveen. Um, and thank you for being so honest. Uh, you know, I don't know if any of us could have envisioned that those signals were as serious as they actually ended up being. Um, I, the one last point that um, that I wanted to make is we've heard from our from a lot of CMOs that they've um, they've just paused, uh, frozen the the paid marketing, especially the performance marketing side of things. Um, and yet, when we were talking, you mentioned no, we've actually decided to continue. Um, and I just wanted to just very quickly hear from you. What was the logic behind that? Yeah, so I think uh, there are two parts to it. There's a overall brand spend and pay, like, and, and spend from a media standpoint. That's a very different thing because that messaging has to be far more uh, understanding people, right? But when people have specific needs, so what are the needs right now? I think the needs right now, we are seeing very high demand or at least people interested in life insurance in a big way, right? People are interested in healthcare insurance right now because obviously people who ignored these things, they're looking at that, right? So, so I always talk about fast money and slow money. So we make decisions on fast money very quickly but when it comes to slow money, really big decisions about investing and buying life insurance and those kind of things, people are generally not really receptive to that. But crises like this create opportunities whereby people are really focused on it. Uh, actually, I'll consider yesterday, we had a call where this person called uh, and uh, they had uh, two kids, 20 and 23, and on the phone, they bought life insurance for themselves, their spouse, and their two kids. We rarely see somebody buying four life insurances in one call. Uh, but what that's telling you is the anxiety is leading to needs. And uh, given the needs exist from the customer, especially on the paid side, if we can create focused need-based solutions, uh, there's, a, there's value to it. So we're not going to actually um, go down on it. We are going to increase our spend. And uh, there's no reason why we would not. So really the, 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 the thinking here is, if there's a need and we can express that need more clearly, then putting more dollars behind uh, that need is not a bad thing. And we're going to see results from that. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, Naveen, thank you. One final quick question uh, from the audience. Did you paint that painting behind you? That's my, that's actually my wife. You know, she was painting. We shared this room and last night she was painting. I think it's not fully done yet, but uh, yeah, she was painting on it last night. It's beautiful. There we go. So now we know that fact about you. There you go. Um, Tell her painting. Uh, so Rachel, we're going to do a quick poll um, and then we're going to have one more interview and then we're going to take a few questions from the audience for everyone, just to give everyone the run of show. So over to you, Rachel. Great. Well, Naveen, does your wife sell her paintings? We can give her a shout out. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think it's perfect. You know, she just, I think it's uh, stress decompressive for her. So <laughs> when she's ready for e-com, you just hit me yeah, up. Exactly. Um, meanwhile, uh, let's pull up the poll. So has your content and communication volume changed as a result of COVID-19? Let us know. Decrease, increase, and if it increased, by how much? Wait, you guys, to the team at Notch who's handling this, it says host and panelists can vote, which doesn't seem fair. I want to be able to vote. <laughs> so if there's a way you guys can let us vote, please let me vote, because I want to say 4X or more. <laughs> it's just funny that that's a feature in Zoom. You know, of all the things they need to do right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, so we're going to share the results. Um, Great. Well, in the meantime, I cannot wait to pull this person up. If you guys do not know Stephen Wolf Piera, then you might not be working in our industry. SWP, please unmute yourself. <laughs> Hello, Rachel Ananda. Hello, everyone on the panel. Hello. So uh, for folks who don't know Stephen Wolfpera, he is the CEO and founder, co-founder of Encanitos, which is honestly going to be the next great children's media company uh, around the world. And you're already off to such a phenomenal start. I mean, I think within your first six months, you guys won an Emmy, which is absolutely remarkable and well-deserved. And I've been thinking about you a lot, so I'm happy we can catch up here because you always have so many things up your sleeve. Like you've been launching consumer products, new IP, a digital education platform. And I've been actually wondering when COVID hit, did SWP change his plans or is he still moving full speed ahead? I think SWP knew that this would happen and had the crystal ball before all of us knowing him. No, def definitely not. But first off, uh, you know, thank you both. I mean, one, you're, you're just, you know, such strong, incredible leaders. But the fact that you're keeping our industry together, that you're bringing us this information and just really providing this form, just a testament to your leadership. Just so thank thanks to both of you for doing this. Um, it's great to see Notch and Mick Mac, again, playing a leadership role in the industry. Um, you know, this is a, a really unique time because, you know, nine out of 10 kids around the planet are actually stuck at home. And it's, um, you know, interesting. I left, you know, 20 plus years working in corporate, mostly in B2B and technology and finance, um, you know, and most recently as a CMO, um, to really focus full time on building an entertainment education company that was really taking the power of technology entertainment and really applying it to education and the thesis was that everything is going to be impacted by three macro trends, digital, diversity, and most importantly, direct-to-consumer. And we always had this thesis that direct-to-consumer is going to happen to education. It's just going to take longer. 
Well, um, that is not the case anymore um, because everyone around the planet is now learning how to do learning at home. And mm-hmm. it's, um, it's interesting, while everyone is really focused on how do you take care of your brands, how do you take care of your customers, we at Encantos are trying to figure out how can we take care of your kids because everyone is realizing how inadequate and just how arcane um, the education system is. It's um, so focused on standardization and testing, and you're really lacking ways to keep kids engaged. And they're not focused on 21st century skills, whether it's learning skills, literacy skills, or life skills. And so, Stephen, yeah. what would be, um, just because I'm so out of your space, yeah. who are the major players right now in like children under 12 years old online learning? Sure. So, you know, it's, um, it's really a very fragmented space. Obviously, the way that we frame the marketplace, think about two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you have pure entertainment, you know, kind of kids and family brands. Obviously, Disney, you know, the gold standard, but, you know, Pixar, or anyone else that's doing kind of family entertainment. Um, but it typically lacks substance and it's, you know, great storytelling. But did we really need Toy Story 4? I don't know. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have pure education, which is typically teachy and preachy. And it doesn't really have a brand. And it's really kind of focused on testing and, and just um, standardization. So the ed tech companies, you know, there are tons of apps. Just go into the app store for you know, uh, Google, iOS, and you'll see all these ed tech uh, plays. But there really is no brand. There's no character. There's no storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I think people are trying to figure out what to use. And you know, there's just you know, great stuff out there like Khan Academy. There's Khan Academy Kids but there really is no one that has kind of fused entertainment and education. And that's kind of where we're trying to do that. It's funny what you, you said when you opened up, um, cause I'm seeing the same thing, but in a different sector, right? Which was online grocery shopping. We're now consumers are where we thought we would be in the year 2025. Yeah. And the fact that that's happening for uh, children's education is amazing. Now I know you launched something pretty significant within 48 hours. Yeah. Can you tell me like what that is, how this came to be, and what early results you're seeing? Sure. So, you know, we are certainly a direct-to-consumer company building family brands, but we're really taking all of the um, kind of learnings of enterprise SaaS and bringing it to education. So that's kind of like our macro thesis. But we were planning to launch our first paid subscription app in the fall. So think about a Netflix-style model, all-you-could-eat, and um, a subscription-based model. But we had to accelerate all of that. And so it's, it's really been kind of a tale of two cities. On the one hand, we are incredibly impacted by COVID. I mean, all of our kind of brands, they actually start with books. Here's our latest book for Tiny Travelers, India. Um, you know, we will be doing Transylvania at some point. So Anda will make sure that you are a country guide. Um, but the reality is, all of the kind of revenue projections and forecasts that we had, they all have to be reset because we have been so impacted like every other brand. So on the one hand, the impact is real, but on the other hand, we have a huge opportunity to make impact. And that's really where we've been focused. We launched the Encantos Learning Hub in 48 hours. And the whole idea was how do we provide resources to all these families at home? And we have the benefit of building purpose-driven family brands because we're also a B Corp. And so we have the number one bilingual preschool brand called Canticos. It's always great because we actually have real product, physical products that we have show and tell. 
This is our new bilingual first series. So teaching, you know, English and Spanish, um, you know, for kind of kids five and under. Um, but we launched uh, the Learning Hub with free lessons, activity sheets, videos, and we're uploading that content every day. And it's free for all kind of kids, families, educators, um, really tr trying to provide that service because the reality is, you know, I, I have two young kids. I have a four and a half year old and a two year old, just like you were talking about, Anda and Rachel, like my wife, Nuria, you know, we take turns, you know, doing the homeschooling, like it's a real issue. And I think that's one of the positive things that you get to come into people's home because of COVID. You also now get to see people's families and their kids. So what, because you're, you're living the life of an entrepreneur and you're now living the life of an at-home teacher, mm -hmm. what behaviors have you witnessed with your own children when it comes to online learning? Like, are they paying attention? Do they get distracted? Like, I want to learn more about that. Sure. So part of the whole thesis is, you know, education is really boring because it doesn't take the best of entertainment. I mean, if you think about it, how much money did Pixar spend on their latest feature onward, right? They probably spent easily $150 million. They spent four plus years. They had people obsessing about storyline and characters and all this engagement so that you are drawn into this story. How much time is a teacher spending on a lesson plan, right? Like how much thought or you know, activity you know, went into that it's really hard to compare the two. And so you see kids now having to learn through Zoom and they get bored in seconds. It's so hard to capture their attention. And it just goes back to what every great marketer knows. You really need to have a story to engage an audience. And yeah. it's no different when it comes to learning. And if anything, you know, this is now the AI era. You actually really need to focus on what are the skills that kids need to learn. And part of it is creativity. It's storytelling. That is going to be more important than ever. So we really are trying to figure out how do we tell all the things that we need to the kids to learn, but in a really engaging way and having characters help tell those stories is a key ingredient as part of our special sauce. And um, I think when we were chatting, you mentioned that you're bringing this to teams. There's mm -hmm. sort of a B2B aspect to what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, in the spirit of, you know, what um, both Dean and uh, Naveen were talking about, this is really not a time to be thinking about the commerce side of it. I think it's really the opportunity to focus on how are we all connected? Like, we are all in this together. Everyone is using that as kind of like a catchphrase, but it really is true. And so what can we do if we're building family brands? Well, you know, we're not in the B2B space. I'm not going to be working with Prudential, but... Prudential, you know, Naveen, you said how many, you know, uh, employees do you have? All of them are home. All of them are struggling with the same thing. If we could actually provide our free learning tools for every single brand that's out there, we're already working with Proctor. We're working with MasterCard. We're working with large brands so they could bring these additional resources to just add it as a supplement. I mean, everyone is trying to figure out how to make it easier for their employees at home, but the kind of overlooked area is the learning part for their kids. We'd love to talk to you, by the way. Happy to. Happy to help. We'll facilitate that intro. And if you don't, I'm sure you already know each other. Uh, now, Stephen, even though you're no longer a CMO, and I'm going to brag about Stephen for a second. He was CMO of Newstar. He was the CMO of Quantcast. He was the head of marketing at Oracle. He has had a phenomenal career, and I personally have learned so much from him in terms of how to do B2B marketing. And by the way, he always takes our calls and he always helps every time we need anything as big or as small. So, yes. 
just All right, I'm just going to exit stage left. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> industry, but I say all this because you're so plugged in to the industry. I want to know what you believe are going to be the lasting impacts of COVID on our industry. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a human LinkedIn, and I just really believe in the power of connection. And um, I might uh, be second only to Nadine, who you have uh, here as a panelist as well. So she truly is the Uber connector. But, um, you know, we actually do uh, a bunch of us, you know, I serve on the board of the Ad Council and a bunch of uh, CMOs. We, we do a weekly CMO Zoom therapy session. And so it's a lot of great brands that, uh, that you know and love. And I feel that, Naveen, you know, you really just kind of scratched the surface. There's a consensus that uh, this is not going to be a forever change, but this is going to be a multi-year change. And I don't know if people are really preparing for that. You just saw the unemployment numbers, literally over 22 million filing for unemployment. This is going to have just an incredible long-lasting effect that we are grossly underestimating. And, you know, we see it first with kids, right? So let's say if COVID, you know, they start relaxing, you know, um, you know, kind of all the, all the rules and we're able to start, you know, interacting with folks, um, are parents going to let their kids go to school? That's mm -hmm. a real question, right? And so how do you actually think of any type of business that is dependent or involves gathering of large numbers? Um, mm -hmm. Facebook literally just came out. It, uh, it just came out uh, a couple of uh, maybe like a half hour ago. Let me find the exact uh, headline. Facebook cancels all large physical events through June 2021. So this is going to be something where it's going to force everyone to rethink the way that we're connected. I think there's going to be a huge privacy issue because all of the tracking that's being done and all the stuff that you all talk about in terms of first party data, how does that reframe the relationship between consumers and brands? Um, but I do feel that this is also a really great time for innovation. And um, you're seeing it in terms of creativity, you're seeing families kind of do virtual tours where they'll get you know, kind of a video of a roller coaster ride, they'll put their kids in a little tub and they'll kind of fake the roller coaster ride. I'm really excited to see what innovation comes out of it, but this is something that is not going to be short term. That's my I have to say your Instagram probably is very different than mine because I haven't seen that video yet. <laughs> different life stages. But um, Stephen, can you tell everyone here, because I'm looking at the Q&As, how they can get, how can they can engage with your brand? Where should Perfect. they go? So it's real simple. You can just send uh, an email to hello at encantos.co, E-N-C-A-N-T-O-S.co. Um, or just go to our website, encantosbrands.com, and there you could actually see uh, the learning hub. Just click on learning, and there's a link to kind of connect with us. Happy to work with any and all brands out there. It's all free resources for kids and families. Um, and if anyone needs to get in contact with Stephen, hit him up on LinkedIn, Facebook. I'm sure he'll get back to you. Uh, Absolutely. I think we want to take a question for the whole panel. Anda, yeah. which, one is, which one's burning? And our panelists, you can take yourself off mute. And we can all I have, a, I have a good one. Um, it's a follow-up to what Naveen was saying. Um, so Scott is asking, what is your advice for marketers to retain that small business mindset and close collaboration once this global storm ends? So Steve, you want to go? You want me to go? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm living in the small business mindset, you know, as an entrepreneur and, you know, we have about uh, 25 uh, employees. 
And I would just say that the most important thing is that connectivity, right? And how are you just truly agile and doing the ruthless prioritization to figure out what needs to get done this week? And it is incredible, um, liberating when everything that is just bullshit, you're able to just push it aside. Like you don't need to do the stand-up meetings. You don't need to do like all the kind of, you know, political stuff. Like what needs to get done and how do you have this get shit done mentality? That's been our overarching focus. So every single day we know what are we getting done today? And that was critical for us to accelerate the app uh, from launching in the fall to actually launching it, you know, in, um, at the end of this quarter. Um, but I would just say, how do you have the ruthless prioritization to understand what is everyone working on and getting done this week? When you break it down to that kind of almost atomic level, it's very easy to go fast and have an agile mindset. I cannot agree with you more, Stephen. I think uh, at least my general view is do a few things, focus, and do them well, which means that you have to create extreme clarity of outcomes. And I think marketers sometimes get caught up in activities versus outcomes. Mm -hmm. And frankly, just focus, focusing on, okay, these are three things that we really want to nail and do less. You know, uh, that creates real clarity. And frankly, I actually think that in talking about new normal, we would need less marketers, but smarter marketers. And I think that's something which we are not recognizing now. But as we think about over time, uh, the value will get created by the outcomes and less but clear versus lots and lots of stuff. And by the way, that's very true for content too. You know, it's not about number of things that you put out. It's the quality of content. And I'll go, if you don't mind. So where, where I really agree with Stephen is this, so often we start to get focused on the how of the thing that becomes the most current thing, right? So if you think about agile development and agile as applied to marketing, what, what is actually a very good concept suddenly became just nonsense because it was you know, here are the rules of how you do Agile, and here's all of this bullshit that surrounds the way you do it, and you actually lost the idea, which is you're trying to know what you are testing, and you are trying to understand quickly if you are failing or succeeding. It's that simple, and instead you've got this whole kind of set of rules that came up around this concept of Agile, and so what I'd like to see us take forward is do stuff faster, but get rid of all this nonsense. And frankly, the other thing, and Naveen said it as well, so often marketers, I hear it in my own organization, it's one of the reasons I don't like industry conferences. We're always talking about the technology or we're talking about the how, and we lose sight of what it is we're trying to accomplish with our customers and would-be customers, and even um, if you lead communications for your organization, your own internal employees. So figure out what you're trying to do before you get to the technology that's going to enable it. Otherwise, you're going to automate the wrong stuff. We wholeheartedly agree. Anda, who is next? So next up, we have Jessica Burns from Grubhub. Um, very excited. I feel like Grubhub is a brand that's very close to our hearts, especially during a time like this. Um, Jessica, welcome. I remember I met you at one of our breakfasts, and I immediately thought you were one of the smartest marketers I'd met. Um, very curious to hear what you what you have to share with us today. So welcome to the to the stage. Thanks for having me. Um, we've been tired <laughs> as a brand. Um, you know, it's rare for a non-essential service like delivery to quickly pivot overnight and become an essential service. Um, and my team, I'm I'm so proud of my team at Grubhub because 
we have launched in the last five weeks two national campaigns. We've released probably five to six new product features overnight um, to basically accommodate this shift to delivery and support our marketplace, which is our restaurants and our drivers. So when you talk about agility, I mean, we have been living and breathing that. And as far as kind of maintaining the integrity of the work and just the health and wellness of my team, that's been on top of my agenda every day. Um, as far as how we get that done, every day is a reprioritization meeting. What are we focusing on? What hasn't worked? What do we need to optimize? What have we learned from our community? Um, how do we pivot our message to make sure that, you know, we're supporting kind of the needs of that community? Um, so it's been such a roller coaster. Um, but I'm super proud that we've been able to kind of feed the, the nation um, and provide people with, you know, little bits of comfort from their favorite restaurants um, over these last five weeks. Um, and I'm curious, yeah. Jessica, as you, were, as you were thinking about the role of marketing in this, I know some of the conversation we had during the breakfast was, you know, the, the kind of breakdown between performance versus brand. I yeah. know you guys were, were really starting to think about brand as being really important, um, thinking about the role of content. Has that, has the crisis shifted that at all? It sounds like you've done two big brand campaigns in the last few weeks, but tell us a bit about that breakdown between the two. How have you thought about that? Yeah, um, you know, where I work for a tech company, I'm sure Nick can attest to this too, is we test everything. It's, you know, multivariate testing. Um, performance is super important to us. And, you know, our performance, our growth, and our brand teams are sometimes at conflict because of that. But the one thing that we did unite around over the last five weeks is we need to kind of lead with what our community needs right now. Um, and we need to be focused on supporting our restaurants um, and providing them with an ecosystem that's efficient and effective. And we need to be supporting our diners to make sure they're getting delivery safely. Um, and we need to make sure our drivers are, are being supported as well. And um, if they come in, you know, under COVID and get this, you know, this virus, how can we support them with paid leave? So um, we haven't been as rigorously analytical, I think, over the last five weeks. We've been very much brand-led what's right for our community. Um, and you know, what's really interesting through all, all of this is, is, you know, the, all of the work that we've put out, all of the content has been some of our top performing content. We put out a TV spot nationally for Grubhub that was in support of our restaurants. And it's like the highest performing TV spot we've had in Grubhub history. And that was produced in uh, 48 hours. <laughs> wow. So it goes to show, um, you know, I, I, my boss, our CEO, I, I keep on telling him that the 48 hour turnaround thing is not realistic. Like you cannot expect this going forward. <laughs> it's an anomaly. Hopefully we won't have to do this again, but it's certainly transformative, right? And honestly, it's been really empowering for my team where we'll come up with an idea, we'll quickly green light it and we'll push it out. And um, I, I, they've been really inspired by that. And again, I'm just so proud of how, they're, how they've been handling it because it, it sure hasn't been stress free over the last couple of weeks. I can tell you work for a tech company if you go to your CEO and tell them, please don't expect this type of agility from me in the future. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned the things that have worked really well. What are some of the things that haven't worked? It's obvious that you've leaned into creating content about COVID. Um, what are some of the, you know, over the last two weeks, the things that you feel haven't been as effective? Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is, you know, as a brand, we 
from a targeting perspective, we usually target nationally. It's the most efficient, especially when it comes to TV. We usually don't focus on local. But what's interesting about COVID is, you know, the coasts are, are um, getting hit with COVID and kind of um, the maturity of, of COVID on the coast is very much different than the middle of America, right? So we can't take on like a one-size-fits-up approach to how delivery kind of fits within these markets. And so we quickly, for New York, for example, for all the New Yorkers here, um, it's kind of crazy how many people have like left the city um, over the last few weeks. 30% um, of restaurants have shut down. Um, and so what we've done is we have like quickly pivoted to how do we support the market in like the most effective way. Um, and um, we continue to kind of talk to our diners and our restaurants and our drivers on a daily basis to figure out how we can better support them through this. So it feels like it's con constant optimization, but not based on the content. It's based off of the learnings that we get from our community and how we can kind of enhance their experience from both a product experience perspective and a messaging perspective to make sure they're being supported and safe throughout all of this. So my last question to you, Jessica, because you guys have been working so hard and your entire you know, extended family at Grubhub has been working so hard. What have you been trying to do internally as a company to make sure that um, you're maintaining productivity, but also morale, mental health, health in general, et cetera? Yeah. Um, my team is broken up between um, New York and Chicago. So we function very well with, you know, um, remote uh, work. So um, I feel like the video conference thing has always worked for us. We like, we know how to manage it. It's never been an issue. Um, but because we've been working really 24 seven and really every weekend, um, I think some of us were talking about kind of an afternoon break. We've been implementing that with our teams too. And we're calling it kind of a wellness break where they don't mm -hmm. think about work and they either focus on their family or their self and in self care. So that's been really effective. Um, having kind of a morning and an evening meeting, a check-in with my teams to make sure they're, they're focused and we can reprioritize as necessary because there's so many things that we have to execute on a daily basis across our marketplace. So it's overwhelming at times, but that constant reprioritization is super important. Um, and then, you know, we also have been doing like, just like mental health, like polls throughout the week, like what has worked, what has doesn't, what, what have you liked, what have you done, doesn't it? We're constantly recalibrating the number of meetings that we have um, and the way that we're communicating to our folks. Um, this is a whole new world of like, you know, we're, let, we're, we're taking a lot off, off email and a lot more on Slack and a lot more on video conference, conference. And it's been like a whole new way of working, but I think communication throughout this is key. Um, and we want to make sure we get it right. So once we get back into work, they're going to feel even more motivated. Well, thank you not only for bringing all this positive energy to, to the webinar, but also for, for doing what you do. Uh, Grubhub has played such an important role in uh, making sure that we're all staying fed, but also connected to our favorite restaurants and keeping those restaurants alive. So thank you for everything. Thank you. Um, so guys, next up, I want to welcome Allison Dew from Dell Technologies. Allison, can you hear me? I can. My mouse, there I am. There you go. Hi, I Allison. I never get off mute and off onto video as quickly as I would like. It's like, Well, that's something for you to work on for the next few weeks. Yeah, exactly. 
I think it's my internet connection. I think there's nothing to be done. <laughs> okay. So, um, Allison, I am very honored to have you today. I tried to get you to join me at CES like two different times. And you said, I really hate big events. I'm not going to go to CES. Um, and here you are joining us here. So I'm very honored to have you. Hopefully the fact that it was a virtual event uh, made it better that it wasn't in Vegas. I don't know. I will say I ran marketing for the PC business for a very long time. And when I became the CMO a couple of years ago, one of the things about which I was particularly excited was that now I could send my team to CES and I no longer had to go. <laughs> I understand that having been there, I think four years or five years in a row, um, there's a silver lining to the fact that we'll probably not have to go this year. Yeah. So Allison, um, very fascinating to hear from you when we were talking, um, now, on the one hand, we were discussing all the ways in which not only the world, but also all businesses, and in particular, small businesses are hit by this crisis. Um, separately, we were talking about some of the aspects of the Dell business that are doing great, um, and how in some ways it's almost harder to make decisions because of those different signals. Um, but obviously, it also helps figure out what to invest in and what to divest um, out of. I'm curious to hear what were some of the big decisions that you felt like you had to make almost immediately as you jumped into the crisis? So some of them are probably pretty obvious and things that everybody has to deal with. We had a series of big events coming up. Our big event was supposed to be in Las Vegas um, in the first week of May, it's 15,000 people. We made the decision quite early on in March to cancel that. We originally were gonna take it digital and we had a very great plan of how we were going to run that. But then very quickly, that also seemed tone deaf. So instead of doing a very celebratory conversation about what we were doing in the first week of May, if you look at it at the peak of the curve, we thought we would be seeing very horrible stories on the news about people in hospital and who really wants to sit there and listen to our digital event, if we're being really honest. So we pivoted then to make the decision that we weren't gonna do any in-person events for the entire calendar year. And that was a decision that was tough because you think about my teams, they're thinking, okay, well, we're not going to have the big event in, in May, but soon I'll be back in business. And I think it was Stephen who made the point about early on, we were probably not honest with ourselves about the length of the crisis. So there was some, some decisions that were specific to my organization around events. There were some other decisions that we participated in around, we moved very quickly in March to global working from home for our entire employee base. And you know, we're talking about over 100,000 people working from home. And that meant that how we communicated with our teams was even more important. So communications is always one of the important parts of my job, but suddenly together with um, my colleague who runs communications, that internal communications became even more important because we actually see significant demand for our products. If you think about companies who thought they had business continuity in place, but they didn't really maybe have the systems that they thought they did. And then at the same time, children at, in, who may not have the access to technology that they need to do remote learning. So we've seen as an essential industry, a very different phenomenon than many others in different sectors have seen. So, and yet recognizing that our teams are dealing with having children at home having all of these complexities that frankly that everyone is dealing with, that became even more important around this daily drumbeat and weekly drumbeat of communications with our organization. So that's one of the things that I've been really focused on. In terms of the, um, 
the kind of paid versus owned and performance versus brand. How have you thought about that? And obviously you have different lines of business, um, some that are impacted by this, some that like positively, some that are impacted negatively. Have you thought about changing that mix? So the, the, my opinion on the conversation about brand versus performance is that we, we tend to get this wrong even outside of a, a pan, global pandemic. So when I talk to my teams, I don't talk about it in terms of brand versus performance. I talk about it in terms of long-term goals and short-term goals. And I talk about, are we trying to introduce category and, for example, gain relevance in cloud, which is not a place where we've historically played. Okay, technically that's brand, but what we're doing there is educating about a new category. Or we are trying to make sure at the same time that people understand that we have great work from home solutions and frankly have been doing that ourselves for the last 10 years and have a lot to say on this topic. So I have actually don't look at it as brand versus performance. I look at it as what's this part of the mix and this part of the content trying to achieve? Is that still relevant? Yes or no? And then make the decision about whether or not we keep it. So a bit different than I think the overly simplistic at times brand versus performance conversation. I like that. And thank you for changing that paradigm. I, I ask it because I feel like almost everyone has a strong answer around it. It's not because I personally believe in it. I think yeah. the mindset of the industry has always been very binary around it. And it's definitely hurt uh, the marketing practice overall, as well as some of the conversations around like, how should you measure success? Um, well, believe me, I so, of internal help with documents that said, oh, you should go cut all brand. And so I, I you know, I actually don't use that word internally for that reason, because I don't want it to, to create the accidental impression that what we're spending in technically above the line advertising is just something that makes me and my team feel good. I mean, that's not really doing us what we actually deliver to the business adequate service. Yeah, what's, uh, what's funny is we were talking to some extent about, um, you know, Naveen, you'll, you'll resonate with this, but there's the Silicon Valley hat, um, some of the investors who are just coming out and saying, cut everything, you know, everything that's non-essential. And by the way, like a few weeks ago, they were saying, grow at all costs, spend money on marketing. And it was almost like a binary switch that just happened overnight. Um, all of a sudden, cut everything that's non-essential. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how, how do you counter that? And one of the things we noticed is when you're looking at the data from the last recession, you see that the brands that invested in marketing and product came out and completely overperformed everyone in their category. So it's, it's really encouraging to hear from both Naveen and Allison and, um, uh, and Jessica that you know, you're, you're continuing to invest and there's continuity um, mm -hmm. in, in that paid and owned focus. Mm -hmm. And equally important, I think, is the question of what you say and how you say it. So one of the conversations my leadership team and I have been having is, obviously, you don't want to ignore the current crisis, but at the same time, you don't want to start every piece of marketing communications or press release or headline or a piece of content within this current crisis, in this current crisis. And I am reminded of a piece of research that we did was perception testing in the 2008-2009 recession, where we actually, after the fact, went and looked at some of the advertising we were putting into market. And there were a bunch of ads targeting IT professionals that said, in these troubled times, blah, 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 blah. And basically, it was, it was implying that you would need fewer IT professionals because you could be more effective and efficient. And the, the really travesty, the travesty was that people who saw that ad were more negative about us than people who didn't see that ad. 
Why? Because you are perceived to be piling onto a crisis. And frankly, you're hitting that amygdala function in people's brain. People are scared enough as it is. We don't need to begin every conversation with, in these troubled times, we have work from home solutions. We can drop that first bit and just talk about why our work from home solutions are great. And that's a balance and it requires a level of thought and um, precision that maybe it's sometimes a little hard to get to. I love that, Alison. I think the other interesting piece is the fatigue that um, I think we're all feeling around this COVID content. Like on the one hand, um, you know, it is my job to say that the data, at least from the measurement we've been doing, shows that COVID content is really resonating, right? But at the same time, it feels like we're hitting this inflection point. I'm curious, how have you thought, obviously you have so many stories of how you can help people during this time. Um, how have you thought about um, telling those stories and also also kind of framing them in the mindset of, let's get ready for when we come out of this? Mm-hmm. So first, there's, if you think about the different audiences, and I realize it's, it's not a marketing question specifically, but our internal employees, they are one of the most important audiences to know what we're doing and how we're responding. Everything from what we're, do- what we're donating to the way we're using our technology, um, lending our supercompute power to, to uh, institutions like TGen, which are doing um, sequencing of the virus. There's a lot of those things where we're really telling and celebrating those stories internally that we're taking a different approach externally, which is we're sort of just letting them come out little by little because we don't want to come across as we're so great and we're doing so much. Because frankly, I think all of us recognize that no matter what we're doing, it's not enough. So we don't want to be perceived as jumping on that bandwagon. So we're doing a slow roll of those communications instead. And then if you, to your second part of your question, Anda, about what comes next, we're also doing scenario planning around the honest truth is when the, when, when the recovery starts, whether it's a, a V, a U, or an L, I don't think any of us knows. But I think what we all know is it's going to be an incredibly lumpy recovery meaning that there are certain industries that are going to recover really well, and there are certain industries that are gonna really struggle and potentially go out of business. So how do we get more sophisticated on vertical messaging and targeting and content, which frankly, we haven't been as great at in the past, but that our past experiences no longer apply because they weren't in response to the recovery from a global pandemic. I mean, there are some businesses, let's be honest, that are booming. So, and, and their technology needs are gonna be greater than ever. So getting more sophisticated about targeting is for me and my organization, one of the most important things that we can do now. That is a very, very smart point. Um, I'm curious, Alison, as, as you've adapted to the new normal, um, especially as a team, what are some of the practices that you've put in place, both in, t- in terms of your team, as well as the larger Dell organization, to make sure that you're keeping everyone productive and also positive? So we, um, as we have been on this, what we call our connected workplace journey for 10 years, right? So we had a very ready system that could easily pivot to now, now 92% of our employees are working from home and the 8% that are not are in factories um, making technology, right? So the, um, we had a pretty good foundation What we also had, interestingly, though, was holdouts, even sometimes at our very senior leadership team of, well, no, I need to to be able to do this face-to-face and kind of, I don't believe in work from home. And so even in our culture that was as far along as we are and were, there were resistors. And so 
we've had to deal to deal with that, and you suddenly see this conversion, frankly, of even our, some of our most leadership, most senior leadership. And then what we're training people on is what channel and what medium to use for what. So some of the advice that we've given, been giving people is use video, but equally important, don't overuse video. There's all kinds of research coming out now about how our brains are getting totally fried because we're over zooming. And you think about the cognitive load around looking at everybody's background. And you know, there's a lot of research that's starting to come out now about in a meeting, in a conference room, you can pretend to be paying attention but actually like doodling and nobody's looking directly at you. But when we're suddenly all looking at each other and I'm checking out what's in your background and I'm thinking about like, you know, is that your boy, your dog is cute. Or like, do you really use that exercise ball behind you? I mean, all this shit that you're doing with your mind, that is incredibly overwhelming. So yes, use video. The richer communication is really important now for that connection, but don't overuse it. And sometimes a phone call is enough. And then that's, so that's the kind of training that we've been giving our own employees. And then for me personally, what I've done is where I would have had a multi-day meeting with my leadership team, I've just chunked that up into fast response. You know, for a while we were meeting three times a week for an hour, now we're meeting two times a week for an hour so that we could get the engines quickly and that we could, we could prioritize and get our organizations unstuck. And then the final thing is, if not, we don't do anything like this is the hour where we don't talk to each other or anything like that. We leave that much more in the hands and the discretion of our employees, but acknowledging that that's there. So in the early days of this work from home phenomenon, the most frequent question that we got into our HR chat system was my manager doesn't realize that I'm trying to deal with my kids also being at home and they still want me to be on the seven hour Zoom call. And so we've started with our senior leadership and then the next levels of leadership saying, you gotta chunk this up. It's basically not possible cognitively for people to engage in the first place. And secondly, you know, if you think about the average age of your most senior leaders tend to be over 50, well, they don't have a four-year-old at home. So you have to have a little bit more empathy for people who are in a different life stage than you are. So that's the kind of training that we've been doing. And, you know, we've done things like Michael and his leadership team. We, we normally do a quarterly meeting with our employees. It's high production broadcast. But this time we just did it all from our homes. We pre-recorded it on Zoom. We took hundreds and hundreds of questions. And our team members loved it because we were honest. We could tell them what we knew. We could tell them what we thought. And we could tell them what we didn't know. And so we've gotten very good feedback for the, the tone and the frequency of communication. I love that. And I, I like the uh, idea of being zoomed out. Uh, just to, as a testimony, the entire time you've been speaking, my brain has been partially wondering where your dog is. My uh, dog is in the bathroom right now. Like, she's okay, I see. Famous in my Zoom videos. I hope, I hope we get to see your dog before the end of the webinar. Um, Allison, thank you so much for that. I wanted, I wanted to pass it over to Rachel to read the results of the yeah. But by the way, Allison, that was really powerful. I think you should turn that into a LinkedIn article, Medium, or something, because um, it really resonated with me as a leader. And uh, I agree with that sentiment because I'm literally in a store getting very distracted during yes. uh, even my own webinar. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. I appreciate it. Um, awesome. So the poll results for those who voted, pulling them up. Uh, so most folks are saying that you've increased the volume of communication by 2x. That seems right for this group. I think it's is a, also a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you're tuning into Notch Micmac webinar, you definitely invest in content. Um, 
But it's also, it's interesting to see there's such a disparity. Uh, it's not a clear winner necessarily. So thanks for voting. So we're gonna bring up now our final speaker. Um, obviously, if you've tuned in for the last five weeks, you'd know I'd figure out a way to talk about e-commerce. So James is the uh, head of e-commerce at McCormick. If you guys are home cooking, you're definitely using at least one of his products. I know I was using your hot sauce yesterday. I made spicy cauliflower rice. Um, you know, everyone has been talking about digital transformation and how we've leapfrogged, you know, consumer behavior that analysts expected by five years. I know you're seeing that within online grocery. So I'm curious, your team probably went from a very important team to the most important team overnight and how you've been managing that change. Like how you just branded that, Rachel, I'm going to totally steal that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that you're absolutely right. Um, my team had been doing a lot of um, testing and learning on kind of think online shopping, particularly within groceries, one of the categories that's not quite as developed when you think about e-commerce. Um, so it's been a lot of, and, and I would say probably four years worth of testing, learning, testing, learning, building a case. Um, fortunately, we have put together some contingency plans even before this crisis got started, uh, that was really about how might we step change. Now, it had always been a conversation of this is three to four years away. Uh, and that really evaporated and became our reality today. Um, so what we've done is we have, we have leaned in pretty significantly. Um, but, and I think we've done it in a way that, you know, the word empathy has come up a lot here today. Um, and that was actually one of the guiding principles that we used for the investments that we're going to be making, both in our creative content, as well as some of the e-commerce work that we're doing. So we're not doing things like a lot of digital banner ads and pushing kind of what we would call um, uh, online uh, demand creation. It's more about how do we meet consumers and online shoppers where they are. And that really starts with search uh, and fixing some of the, the digital shelf principles that we have in place. Um, and what's happened uh, is self-prophecy. Uh, not only are people um, shopping online, obviously, um, for groceries much more today, but the return that we're getting is much better than we ever expected, um, and actually better than some of the testing that we've done. So it's, it's been um, really a, a rapid acceleration, uh, but certainly the right thing to do uh, for the retailers that we partner with, as, as well as our own business. And um, I'm sure, you know, we're all reading the same headlines right now. For example, bread making has gone, you know, out of the roof. Yes. So I'm, I, you see all the data. When people are buying your products right now, what else are they buying? Like, are you seeing some sort of story about American families in the kitchen right now coming together based on the data? Well, it's a lot of that conventional thinking has gone out um, when you look at baskets. Um, we just saw some data earlier this week and some of our products that you would typically find normally, it's a protein that goes along with the seasoning or a hot sauce. Um, it's really unusual things um, and it's small appliances, it's crafts, um, things that we would not have one we're still scratching our heads in some cases about what we need to do with some of that data, um, but also um, finding kind of new and different ways to, uh, to, to do the right targeting, do the right, the right support. Um, but one of the, the things too that did surprise us from um, what people are looking for, you know, our default was, well, we need to go into health and wellness and look at what, from a, a search standpoint, as well as recipes and how we think about positioning our products. And actually, one of the things that we did pivot on over the past uh, 
three or four weeks has been people are just looking for a good home cooked meal. Yeah. Um, so some of the top recipes that you, we would have thought would have shown up with things like how do I use more turmeric or how do I use, you know, immune boosting recipes actually are not um, where we're focusing. We're focusing much more about how do you create nostalgic um, recipes and those kinds of experiences for home cooking. Um, activities with kids is another place where we've kind of met consumers with things like slime, which is back again. Mm -hmm. uh, things like how do you create um, meals with your kids and, and tips and tricks for helping kids participate, which has been, uh, I think, the, the right thing to do from a creative standpoint as well. So it sounds like there's been a shift in terms of what you were expecting. You can't do original content production right now. So how are you optimizing content to meet consumer needs? So 90 plus percent of our content is done in-house. Um, so that has, is both an advantage, but it's also a challenge uh, in the situation that we're in right now. Uh, so we, we continue to use our in-house production right up until we could and safely could for our employees. But we've actually pivoted now to, um, we now have like our culinary team doing at-home videos and at-home hand shots, which uh, is, is certainly challenging uh, from a logistical standpoint, but we're getting just as good um, response and just as good engagement. Um, we also work with some uh, some bloggers that uh, and through our our YouTube channels uh, that uh, are continuing to do that work at home, um, and they've got a really great following. And want to dig a little bit into because this this speaks to what you just said, skills within the organization. So if all of a sudden ecom has grown in importance, but you had a bunch of marketers servicing like Walmart brick and mortar, how have you begun to upskill people? in e-commerce, performance marketing, digital shelf creation in the last you know, six weeks? So, so the evangelization um, ha didn't just start over the past few weeks. It has been ongoing for, for several years. Uh, but I think uh, one of the things where we have pivoted is just sharing additional data. Um, we're a very data-driven organization. Um, sharing what has been happening where we have made some of these activations uh, and some of the shifts in our funding. Uh, and in fact, we're, I guess, one of the fortunate or unfortunate things, we're right in the middle of annual planning as well. So it's been timely to use what we're learning over the past six weeks and influencing really where we need to be, not only in the next six weeks, but think longer term uh, for next year's planning as well. Great. This is a great final question for you. And I'm obviously very bullish on online grocery. We're now where we thought the industry would be in the year 2025. A question that folks like to challenge me with is, yeah, Rachel, we know people are buying groceries right now online. Eventually life will get back to normal. So if a third of America is buying groceries online, once life gets back to normal, what's your expectation in terms of where that number nets out? So I had the same question in our annual planning meeting today as well. Uh, it's, you know, there are surveys, I've looked at many, many surveys over the past several weeks about what's going to happen on the other side, particularly within grocery. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I think there are probably a couple different hypotheses that, that we are working on. One is uh, there's anywhere, the loyalty that we see after first time years as an online grocery within our categories had been like around 20%. Yeah. So you think about 20%, that's actually not that bad. I've seen surveys that have ranged between 20% up to 97% as recent as yesterday. 
I mean, kind of ridiculous numbers. Nobody's really going to be able to figure out what uh, is going to be what that's going to look like on the other side. Demographically, uh, it's it's pretty consistent across the board, at least the data that we're looking at. And then th the last piece of it is when you look at the type of experience that people are having today, it's not necessarily the ideal experience. When you think about auto stocks and you think about the type of service levels and just the safety of the employees that are going in uh, to do that shopping. So uh, we think for our categories, actually the convenience that, that comes from a first experience actually is going to drive higher loyalty. I think it's going to change pretty significantly though. Um, when you look at different segments and different categories, I think where people tend to be picky in their own shopping, where you've got really strong personal preferences like produce, I don't know if that's going to be that sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, but in a lot of our categories, I, they're, what we're seeing is the repeat, even within these few weeks, actually is quite good. Mm, that's so awesome. We're, pretty, we're bullish on it. Yeah. Well, thank you, James, for that and your predictions for the future of online grocery. Uh, so, Anda, I know we're we're at time. Should we take one? question from the Q&A and bring it to our panelists? Yes, that would be great. Um, I actually have um, a question myself, but I'm looking quickly. Do you have a favorite one? If not, then I'll ask mine. No, you, you, you do it. Okay. So for those of you, um, for those panelists who are still on, I'm curious in your kind of one biggest prediction around marketing in post-COVID. What's the biggest change we're going to see stick? And by the way, I just got a margarita from my fiance, so I'm going to be drinking this as you guys know. <laughs> Who wants to jump in first? <laughs> Rachel, do you want to go first? My prediction for the future yeah. one trend that's going to stick? Um, well, so it takes 21 days to build a, build a habit. And I believe that in terms of like event-based marketing, we've now seen the power of virtual events. And I think virtual events will be here to stay absolutely through the year 2021. And this, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, online grocery, online booze shopping, I 100% believe that that's gonna be a behavior that's here to stay. Don't you think uh, it's, gonna be a little, it's gonna be a little bit more challenging for the agencies um, in terms of building massive budget ads. Uh, because what we are seeing is that, you know, I think Jessica, you talked about it a little bit. When you're doing things in 48 hours and you're creating these ads, which are highly effective across TV, across social, across many, many different things. I think the days of very, very expensive large campaigns and, and people were spending like two, $3 million building an ad, not, not the cost of distribution, just building the ad. I think those days you're seeing is so much more effective to just take images, just take stock, you know, photography, your own employees, your own customers. I think it's going to redefine how ad agencies uh, think about revenue in the future. I'm really curious about just consumer mindset shifts. Um, we've gone to like a really dark place and coming out of this, like what content will uh, consumers respond to? Um, at, at our brand at Grubhub, we thought a lot about Coming out of this, how can we start to bring joy back and more entertainment back to our diners? Um, you know, it's not just about giving them a promotional code for free delivery. It's about giving them that adds value from like a surprise and delight or entertainment perspective. So we're actually currently thinking about more of an entertainment platform um, just so we can kind of get people out of this 
feeling good. Um, and uh, we've already started to dabble in kind of, and Rachel, you mentioned kind of live experiences. We're, we've started to roll out our um, Bites concert series. We started it in 2019 and we're extending it in 2022. So watch out for a live concert event from Grubhub and Seamless in the near future. Thank you for listening to this Notch and Micmac Roundtable. We hope you enjoyed the episode and are staying safe and healthy. If you would like to learn more, please visit us at notch.com slash COVID. And if you have suggestions for future guests or topics, please let us know by emailing onda at prosandcontent.co. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.